0: Well, good morning and welcome. I'd invite you to take a Bible and uh, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter one. We're gonna look at the life of Solomon again today from Ecclesiastes chapter one. I got a text from Pastor Gary this morning. I wanna read that to you. Um, He said, uh, prayers for you and the service today. Thank you for being there. It is a blessing not to have to worry about stuff. Said, no problem, don't worry about a thing. The Fire's almost out and there'll be plenty of parking for church as soon as the fire trucks and the news vans leave. (laughs) He wrote back, it's good to hear that the church of God is on fire. So uh, (laughs) uh, Pastor Gary will be back next week, actually this week, I guess, and uh, he'll be back here next Sunday and we'll get to hear him. We all look forward to that. And uh, that's the good news. Bad news is I'm still here. And so uh, let's jump in and uh, get going with Ecclesiastes chapter one. You know, as, as Mike said, tomorrow is Memorial Day. And, and uh, there will be celebrations all over the country um, for those who have paid the ultimate price for our freedom and for our safety. And we as a nation honor these men and women who love country more than self and who loved liberty more than life, Memorial Day is America's most solemn holiday. It embodies the sacredness and a value that is easy to lose track of in the midst of the picnics and the softball games and and, uh, the barbecues and the Indy 500. But it's a sacredness that underpins the entire American experience. What we commemorate on Memorial Day is the ultimate sacrifice that thousands have made in defense of freedom. And it's a sacrifice that shows a commitment to something that's bigger than each of us as individuals. And many people have been willing to make that sacrifice. Let me just give you some statistics. In the Civil War, 364,500 Americans died. World War I, 116,000 Americans died. In World War II, 405,000 Americans gave their lives. Korea came at a price of 36,000. Vietnam, 58,000. The war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan, 68,000 lives in counting. And when we hear numbers like that, it's easy to to lose sight of how personal this sacrifice is. So let me give you some specific instances of people who loved country more than self, who loved liberty more than life. On February 3rd, 1943, an army transport ship called the Dorchester, carrying American soldiers through the icy North Atlantic, On the way to serve in the European theater, World War II, they were about 100 miles off the coast of Greenland with more than 900 people on board, many of them little more than boys, young soldiers and sailors who had never been so far from home. In the blackness of night, a German submarine fired torpedoes at the Dorchester, one of the torpedoes hit the middle of the ship, and there was immediately pandemonium on board the Dorchester swiftly began to sink. Soldiers and sailors, many of them wakened from sleep by the attack, searched desperately in the dark for life jackets and lifeboats and a route to safety. With them on the ship were four military chaplains, John Washington, Clark Poling, Alexander Good, and George Fox. According to multiple accounts by survivors, four men tried to calm the soldiers and sailors and lead them to evacuation points. The Chaplains were doing what chaplains do. They were providing comfort and guidance and hope. The soldier would later recall, I could hear the chaplains preaching courage. Their voices were the only thing that kept me going. There were not enough life jackets for every man on the ship, so... When the life jackets ran out, the four chaplains took their life jackets off and handed them to soldiers who didn't have them. At night more than 600 men died in the icy North Atlantic, but 230 were rescued. And some of the survivors in official accounts given to the army and in, in interviews after the war reported what they saw as the ship went down, those four chaplains, their arms linked, standing on the deck together in prayer. They had willingly given up their lives. They had willingly given up their futures to try to help the men who had been placed by the army in their care. One of the men who survived named John Mahoney recalled his experience. Before going to the lifeboats, he went back to his quarters and on the way, Chaplain Good, seeing him, asked where he was going. He said, I'm going back to my quarters to get my gloves. Chaplain said, you don't have time for that. Take my gloves. He said, I can't take your gloves. He said, I've got two pair, take my gloves. Only later did Mahoney realize that Chaplain Good was not carrying an extra pair of gloves. He'd already decided to go down with the ship. Another survivor of the Dorchester, John Ladd, said of the four chaplains' selfless act, it was the finest thing I have seen or hope to see this side of heaven. What makes someone willingly give their life for another? Why would these men take off their life jacket, give it to another, knowing full well that they cannot survive without it. Well, there has to be something bigger than just me and my life. There has to be a greater purpose in life than just life itself. And that's what we want to talk about today because that's what Solomon talks about in the book of Ecclesiastes. So let's read the first few verses of chapter one and we'll get a flavor for what Solomon is saying. And I would invite you, if you can, out of respect for God's word, to stand as we read these verses together. Beginning in verse one, it says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets and hastens to its place and rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along on its circular courses. The wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome; man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That, That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it's new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Let's pray together. Father, guide us through this, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Please be seated. What's Solomon saying here? Well, The first thing I think he's saying is there's no satisfaction in life. I think what he's really saying is, man, what is the use? What difference does it make with anything I do? Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? And you know what? We ask that question, don't we? Man, I'm working like crazy, but I just can't seem to get ahead. I struggle to pay the bills, and I never seem to have anything left over. Man, I was in line for that promotion, but they gave it to somebody else. I'm trying to do my best to be a good husband or to be a good wife, but here I am going through a divorce. I've tried to do my best to be a good parent and raise my kids right, My kids have walked away from the Lord and they don't want to talk to me anymore. See, this is at the end of Solomon's life and he's looking back on all he's done, on all he's built, on all he's accomplished and he realizes he did it all for himself. He did it all for his popularity, for his reputation, for his legacy and it's meaningless. No satisfaction in it. As he goes on, He says there's no justice in life. Turn over to chapter three if you want to and look at verse 16. He says, furthermore, I've seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. And we would say the same thing, wouldn't we? Just think about how fast our once Christian nation has turned its back on God. Up until 1963, school started with prayer and Bible reading. Since 1963, prayer has been taken out of schools, and we've seen a steady decline in social norms and social behavior. Haven't we? 1973, the Supreme Court said abortion is legal, and since that time, we've killed over 45 million babies in the name of a woman's right to choose. Those who believe in the sanctity of life are made fun of when we speak out against abortion. But when there's a school shooting, we're to blame for being pro-gun. I don't know how they can tell a 15-year-old girl. Her baby's life doesn't matter, but hers does. Kids can see through that kind of hypocrisy. By the way... Prior to 1963, there were a total of 62 deaths from school shootings in the United States. After 1963, there have been more than 500 and that number continues to climb exponentially. I heard this week about a student in Lake Arrowhead at Rim of the World High School where I pastored. I like, pastored in Lake Arrowhead. He was arrested for threatening one of his teachers when the Police went to talk to him. They found in his bedroom a 12-gauge shotgun and ammunition for that gun. Californians voted twice that marriage should be between a man and a woman, but both times the courts nullified those election results. Then the Supreme Court of the United States made gay marriage legal. And now we have Assembly Bill 2943 here in California. California. AB 2943 was jammed through the California Assembly in order to escape public scrutiny, and now the bill has been referred to committee in the California Senate, and there are few bills that are this bad. If this bill is signed into law, it would ban speech, books, advertisement, talk therapy, and anything else that would help people come out of unwanted same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. Franklin Graham, who was here in Ventura County this week, said this about AB 2943. The new bill would apply to all Californians, making it unlawful for any person to sell books, counseling service, or anything else that directs people to trust in Jesus Christ to help them overcome unwanted same sex attraction or gender confusion. You know what that means? It would be illegal to sell Bibles, because the Bible speaks out against homosexuality. And we ask, where's the justice? We can't believe that people whose goal is evil get to do whatever they want, get to to say whatever they want, and yet we can't even talk about what we believe. We see people in positions of power getting away with things, and we see innocent people being falsely accused, and they have to pay a price. That's what Solomon is saying. Look at chapter four. Here's what he says. Then I looked at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living But better off than both of them is the one who never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Solomon's saying, man, what is the use? Things are so messed up, why bother? It'd be better just not to be born. And that leads him to say, you know what? There's no meaning in life. Go to chapter 12, and here's what he says. Verse eight, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Vanity has the idea of fruitlessness or worthlessness, the worthlessness of human endeavors. And this is the overarching theme of this book. Solomon uses this phrase, this word over and over again. It's vanity. And if anybody knew, it was Solomon because he tried everything. Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at all the things that Solomon tried. He tried women. We saw last week that he had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and we don't even know how many princesses turned his mind to wine. He wanted to stimulate his mind with wine. And then he turned his to work, buried himself in work. And Gary talked about what a great builder he was. He built the, the, the temple, and then he built the, the, the royal palace as well. He turned to wealth. He was the richest guy probably in history. Turned to wisdom. He wanted to know everything there was to know. And when it was all said and done, he said, it's vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. It's all worthless. It's all fruitless. Now, at this point, you're probably saying, Mac, this is by far the most depressing sermon I have ever heard in my life. So obviously, Solomon was suffering from clinical depression. He probably should have been intentional, uh, institutionalized. So how does any of this apply to me? What can I learn from this on this beautiful Memorial Day weekend? Well, you go through the book of Ecclesiastes. It does seem that Solomon was a bit depressed. Oh, okay, a lot depressed. But that's not really the case. What he's doing is driving home the point. He's telling his children and his loved one and and us what's really important, what's worth living for, what's worth dying for. And here's what he says, chapter 12, verse 13. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. What makes somebody willingly give their life up for another? What makes a man take off his life jacket and give it to another knowing full well he can't survive without it? it? has to be something bigger than just me, just my life. There has to be a greater purpose than just life itself. And that is the point Solomon is making in Ecclesiastes. There's only one thing worth living for. There's only one thing worth dying for. And that is knowing God and keeping his commandments, doing what he wants, doing his will. And you say, well, that's great, Mac, that's all good and fine. But there are a lot of religions that claim that they speak for God. So how do we know which one is the true religion? How do we know which, which one leads us to God? That is a great question. And there's one event in all of human history that tells us the answer to that question, that points us to the true and living God. That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul said about the importance of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's vanity, just like Solomon said. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. See what he's saying? If there's no resurrection, we're in big trouble here. So how do we know there's a resurrection? For followers of Christ, we know that we'll rise again because Jesus rose again. But how do we know that Jesus rose again? How do we know the resurrection is really true? How do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Let me give you three pieces of evidence and then we're done. Number one, the evidence of the Roman soldiers. After the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the chief priests went to Pilate. Here's what they said. said, sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, talking about Jesus, after three days, I'm going to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, a Roman security team would consist of 15 enlisted men and one officer. These soldiers had a very deep and vested interest in what was going on here because if anyone uh, stole the body of Jesus, if anyone tampered with the body of Jesus, these Roman soldiers, if they lost a prisoner, even a dead one, they would pay with their lives. You remember Acts 15, when Paul is in the jail in Philippi and the angel of the Lord comes and he opens the doors and all the chains fall off the prisoners? What is the the Philippian jailer? A Roman soldier, what does he do? Pulls out his sword, he's gonna kill himself. Paul says, no, 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 don't do that, we're all here. Why? He knew he would pay with his life if he lost one of his prisoners. In light of that, do you really think a bunch of unarmed, untrained fishermen and the women that they traveled with would have gotten past these battle-hardened soldiers who knew that their life depended on keeping Jesus in that tomb? you really believe they could have gotten past these men and taken the body of Jesus? Anybody in their right mind would say, yeah, I don't think so. That would have been impossible. So the evidence of the Roman soldier says the resurrection is true. Let's look at the evidence of Jesus' enemies. When the news that Jesus had risen from the dead began to spread throughout Jerusalem, the enemies of Jesus set out to stop that rumor at whatever cost. And according to Matthew 28, the Jewish leaders gave a great sum of money to these Roman soldiers. And here's what they said to them. You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. We'll keep the the Roman governor from killing you For losing your prisoner. And they didn't have any options, so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story is widely spread among the Jews as it is to this day. Now, here's my question Why did the Jewish leaders spend all this money, all this time, all this political capital? Why did they they go to all of this political trouble to discredit the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I mean, think about it. All they really had to do is produce the body. And Christianity dies in its tracks. All they had to do is put the body of Jesus on display in downtown Jerusalem for everyone to see. It was done, it was settled. No more Christianity. So why didn't they just do that and be done with it? Well, there's a very simple answer they didn't have a body to put on display, the tomb of Jesus was really empty. And remember, in light of what we've seen, nobody could have got in there and stolen the body because of the Roman guards. So how do we explain what happened? There's only one real answer that makes sense. What the Bible says about the resurrection is true. The evidence of the enemies of Jesus says the resurrection is true. Thirdly, third piece of evidence, the eyewitnesses. And eyewitness evidence is a funny thing. If you want to grow up and be an attorney, you're going to go to law school. If you go to law school, you're going to have a textbook that's named Phibson on evidence. And here's what Fibson has to say about eyewitness testimony. As a general rule, as I'm quoting, as a general rule, courts may act on the testimony of a single witness and where that testimony is not impeached, they should act on it. So if you have a single Witness and and he's a good witness. There's no reason not to believe him. You should act on that. And, and he goes on to say corroboration by another witness, while not essential, is always desirable as it can turn probability into certainty. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is exactly what we have. We don't have just one eyewitness or two eyewitnesses. We literally have hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected living Christ. Listen to what Paul says about this. 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, and then the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. And so these eyewitnesses wrote down their testimony in the New Testament. These eyewitnesses preached the resurrection of Christ everywhere they went. And when they were challenged as to the credibility uh, that they had on these issues, they always resorted to the very same thing. They always said, we are eyewitnesses. We have seen with our own eyes. And the point is this. in Every rule of law, this much eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ turns probability into certainty, as Phippson says. And you may be saying, well, wait a minute, Mac. What if all of these eyewitnesses were in on the con? What if all of these eyewitnesses were lying? What if they were in on all of this? What if it was just a hoax? You know what, that's a fair question. So let's look at them. Let's look at the facts Truth is, most of these eyewitnesses paid the ultimate price for their testimony. They gave their lives rather than recant their testimony about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And people will give their lives for something they believe. People will give their lives for something they know is true. And if we go back to our law textbook, we find that Mr. Phibson says this, the credibility of a witness depends on his knowledge of the facts as well as his integrity And his veracity, proportional to these things is the credit his testimony deserves in court. Well, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that when a person is willing to back up their testimony with their very life, that qualifies a person as a person of integrity and veracity. So as we look at the evidence, we'd have to agree that the resurrection is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. The evidence that there is a risen Christ is compelling to say the least. The evidence of the Roman soldiers means that the body wasn't tampered with. The evidence of the enemies of Christ who could have stopped Christianity dead in his tracks by producing the body of Christ proves that the resurrection happened. We have the evidence of the eyewitnesses, literally hundreds of people who saw the risen Christ with their own eyes, gave testimony to that fact, and many of them gave their lives rather than recant their testimony about the risen Christ. Now, can we prove scientifically that Jesus rose from the dead? Can we do that in a test tube? No. But could we build such a strong case for the resurrection that any court, any jury would have to find in favor of the resurrection, we just did. Because we know the resurrection is true. We know the rest of the Bible is true as well. And so when Solomon says the conclusion is this, fear God and keep his commandments. There's our reason for living. There's our purpose for living. If living for God means that someday you and I might have the opportunity to give our lives for the cause of Christ, it's okay, because Jesus Christ has already conquered death and the grave, and because he lives, we live as well. That's why four chaplains were willing to take off their life jackets and give them to other people on February 3rd, 1943. That's why so many American servicemen and women willingly gave their lives on the battlefield because they knew their Lord and Savior had conquered death and conquered the grave already. Not all of them, but many of them. And that's how we can know that our lives aren't just vanity. Our lives aren't just chasing after the wind. That's how we can know our lives have meaning and purpose because we've made the commitment in our lives to fear God and keep his commandments. That alone gives our lives meaning and purpose. That alone is the meaning of life. Let's pray together. Father, today as we look at what Solomon had to say, we recognize that living for ourselves is vanity. Living for ourselves is empty. But there's nothing more satisfied, there's nothing more just. There's nothing with more meaning than living for the true and living God by trusting in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, on this Memorial Day, we remember those that gave their lives for our country. But the reality is they followed your example when you gave your life for us. And we give thanks for that in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.